Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Jeff Tyson, expert partner and global head of fintech at Bain. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you for having me, Theo. It's uh, it's great to be here and look forward to a fun discussion. Yes, I've been following you online for quite a while. This is the first time I actually see you face to face. So it's nice to make the connection here with Arun. Before we start, though, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career journeys? Um, practically, you've been a little bit all over the globe. Um, mm. And also your roles from fintech startup, fintech consulting at a challenger consulting firm, and now at Bain. So tell us a little bit. Sure, very happy to. So I'm, I'm one of those guys, Theo, that has literally spent his entire career in financial services. So I, I was born and raised in, in Holland. Um, I started my career, my professional career uh, at ABN EMRO when ABN was still one of the world's leading financial institutions. Things have changed a little bit you know, since then, um, but started as a, as a private banker you know, back in the days. Um, you know, worked for uh, a number of, of Dutch banks on a range of, of different topics, uh, worked on the, you know, the, uh, the merger of Postbank and ING, for example, back in the days, which was my first stint in the wonderful world of post-merge integrations. Uh, I had the pleasure of doing you know, a few uh, you know, large-scale banking migrations in the years that followed, which is basically where I lost my hair. Um, but um, I moved to you know, to the UK together with uh, with my missus uh, about twelve years ago now, and um, you know I've had the, the pleasure and feel very fortunate to have had the ability to work with some of the largest financial institutions across the globe. I've worked in Hong Kong, I've worked in Singapore, I've worked in the Middle East, I've worked in you know, different parts of of the US, and the list goes on and on and on. And that's been uh, on one hand an incredibly exciting journey, but also a very rewarding uh, journey. I think if I fast forward a little bit to you know, my most recent experience, so I, 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 as you say, I run FinTech globally for Bain & Company, obviously one of the, the largest management consultancies in the world. Uh, uh, I have an incredibly exciting role, which you know, I know we'll talk a, a little bit more about later on. Um, so I joined a business two years ago. Before doing that, I spent three years uh, building and uh, running the consulting business for 11FS, a business that you know, I'm sure many of your listeners will be very, very familiar with. And you know, it was fantastic to have the ability to, you know, together with David and Jason and Simon and you know, the rest of the gang, uh, effectively a bunch of fintech nerds, to, um, you know, to, to build that business uh, effectively from scratch. And you know, we had you know, the pleasure of again working with some of the biggest names uh, in uh, in the industry. Um, so again, feel very fortunate and privileged to have had you know, the ability to go and do that for you know for a number of years. And um, as in now, so, you know, tell you a little bit more about you know, the work I'm doing now. There's really three types of clients you know, that my team uh, focuses on. On one hand, you know, the, the big incumbent banks, insurance companies, wealth managers. And you know the, the depth and strength of relationships in this place is just second to none. Um, so that that's that just offers fantastic opportunities. We're doing a ton of work with many of the world's leading fintech players, including you know neil banks, uh, Web three companies. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, and then you know we're also by far the dominant player on you know, the investor private equity side. So to give you a, a feel for that, I mean last year we were involved in about eighty percent eight zero of all the top fintech deals globally. 
And you know, what that means is that on one hand, you know, we don't just get to work with many of, many of the world's leading investors. We also get to do a lot of work with their portfolio companies, working directly with their management teams, helping them to figure out you know, what, what, what's next, where do we go from here? Um, and it also gives us a front row seat to what's going on in the industry. And then, of course, applying that knowledge again to the work that we're doing with incumbent players who are very, very interested and excited you know, in, in what's going on. In, uh, in those areas. So uh, again, I feel very, you're very fortunate, very privileged, and very proud you know, of, uh, uh, of my career thus far. But um, yeah, I know we'll get into this uh, in a little bit more detail. I must admit, I feel jealous when you describe the last part, the 80% deal that stat, that kind of really is, is, is such a, such an amazing uh, stat to, 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 to put it on your CV, I'm really, really glad for you. Um, let's probably double click a little bit into the, the way FinTech has evolved over the last probably 10 years. Um, um, and we could potentially say 2008 was probably the turning point where we knew that uh, the, the, the financial service and banking sector as it was at that time had to have a facelift of some sort. Um, and probably 10 years, Ago, we, we all kind of thought fintech was the solution and i still believe fintech uh, could do a lot more but one might argue that it has probably been more of a ux facelift to the to the to the banking sector so what do you think fintech needs to get it get right from a from a sustainable innovation perspective so that the people who really need financial services actually receive it how does it get to the grassroots of the society what do we really need to do Yes, it's a great question, uh, Arun. And I think I think you're in a way. I think you're absolutely right. right? So if you if you rewind the clock a couple of years back, um, yeah, the the the, you know, the the pace of change or the the level of disruption and innovation that we're seeing today clearly wasn't there, yeah, eight, nine, ten years ago, right? And if you look at some of the the biggest um, you know, jurisdictions around the world. In most cases, whether that's the UK or Brazil, you know, both the retail and the SME market was dominated by four or five big players who own, you know, who, who controlled 80% of the market. And therefore, you know, I think quite often that, that, yeah, I think it sometimes felt that there wasn't necessarily a need to be more innovative, a need to, to take more risk because yes, you may gain, you know, two or 3% market share, but to what extent is it, is it worth the effort, right? Because I think you know, we're all doing relatively well. We're all generating a ton of revenues. We're all being, you know, pretty successful uh, as a financial institution. And I think the, the disruption that we have seen in recent years, I think has, has also, you know, been a bit of a wake up call for the large incumbent financial institutions. I, I do very much agree with you though, that also, given that you know that uh, the pace of change that we're seeing today, I think unlike is unlike anything that we've ever seen before. I mean, I as I spent my whole career in financial services, I honestly think there's never been a more exciting time to work in financial services. But I think it also depends on you know which side are, are you effectively on, right? Because I've I've been on the banking side. I know how incredibly hard it is to transform a large legacy bank. Uh, not just from a from a technology perspective, but also from a cultural perspective. I also think it's it's worth um, you know, looking at this through you know, more of a of a VC lens, right? And take a bit more of a longer longer term perspective, because even if you look at the the most established neo banks, you know the Monzos, the Starlings, the Chimes, the New Banks, the Revoluts of the world, even those businesses have only been around really since 
you know, let's say 2015. So even for them, it is still relatively early days. And then if you compare it to you know, the largest financial institutions out there who've been around for you know, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years, who've built a very, very diversified business you know, with so many different revenue streams, I think it's also important that we give you know, these challenges some time you know, to, to really fundamentally challenge the big boys, not just with a fundamentally better customer experience, but you know, to, to, to really you know, challenge the dominant position that you know, these, uh, these guys have had. Now, you know, back to your question around what, what do I think needs to happen? You know, obviously, the last you know, 12 months, you know, the, the mood music has changed quite a bit. And in a way, even though it's, you know, don't get me wrong, I think it's very, very you know, painful to see so many people losing their jobs. Um, but I think the harsh reality is that you know, and it's interesting if you look at the um, you know the uh, the messages that that several CEOs have come out with in recent months as part of the layoffs that they have done, where everyone admits, even the big tech companies, everyone admits that we were sort of growing too fast, right? And and um, you know we've just experienced effectively ten years of nonstop growth. I think we all knew that at some point that was probably going to come to an end. And on one hand, I think it's a bit of a wake-up call. Um, I don't necessarily think for the sector as a whole it's a bad thing. I think it's a necessary thing. And I also think that on one hand, it forces a lot of the you know, the management teams to go back to the drawing board and instead of pursuing hyper-growth at all costs, just because you can and you're sitting on hundreds of millions of VC money, you're really figuring out how we're going to make sure that you know, this business is going to continue to be around in the next you know, couple of decades? How do we work towards sustainable profitability? How do we make sure that we better monetize our existing customer base? How do we grow average revenue per user? You know, all that good stuff, which you know, that's an area where, where we're spending uh, a lot of time uh, in working with many of these players. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, I remember... I'd say two and a half years ago or why not in one of the episodes Arun and I were talking about the slowdown is coming, the slowdown will come. And yet we look at 2021, that year, it was wild. It was still going as if the music would never stopped. So as, as you say, the correction was probably much needed and um, we need to go back to the fundamentals, looking at exactly what are we doing and how do we create something that can survive and thrive and not just based on paper money. Which brings me to one of the verticals within the fintech uh, ecosystem, buy now, pay later. A lot of these firms have popped up in the last two years. More and more questions have come up as to exactly, are they really good for customers? Can they really sustain what they have been doing? What's happening with the regulatory perspective, for example, the UK, which starts last year and this year starting, regulators are starting to look at what are you guys doing? Um, and even is, is this even sustainable? Because a lot of these models were built, as you said, based on VC money. And now as we see a lot of the valuations start coming down, the question becomes, what is going to happen with their business models? Do we actually have players who can do something in a more sustainable way and what can we learn from them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? And, um, so back in 2021, um, 
you know, I wrote a report uh, about BinoPayLater and you know, what, what's behind the rise of BinoPayLater? Why, why is it so popular? And how do we think you know, the space will evolve going forward? Now, exactly as you pointed out, I think BinoPayLater in a, in a low interest rate environment is quite fundamentally different compared to what we've witnessed you know, in recent months. And uh, I know there's been a there's been a fair amount of of criticism, uh, you know, when it comes to buy no pay later and whether or not it is sustainable, whether or not, you know, it 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 sort of you know pushes customers into into debt and a whole bunch of other uh, issues that that have been highlighted, and whether or not, you know, it's actually a a healthy development when people start using buy no pay later to pay for basic goods like groceries, right? And um, I think what, what it does highlight is just, just given the significant levels of adoption that we've seen in, in you know, both you know, more mature economies as well as less developed economies, um, that there's a clear demand for this product, right? And therefore, from a regulatory perspective, it's, you know, it's always, and this doesn't just apply to Binopelator, this applies to any form of, of you know, new advancements in financial services more broadly. It's finding that balance between yeah, how do you allow innovation to to thrive, but you still focus on consumer protection, right? Because ultimately, that's of course what what the regulator here is uh, is is trying to achieve. Now, the the reality is that you know, if you look at biopayments as a sector, it, it, the margins are very very thin. Right? So any change in the broader macroeconomic environment automatically has significant implications for their overall business model. And you know, what, what you've also witnessed is that um, as soon as you know, they enter a new market, for example, credit losses tend to be relatively high. And um, you know, making sure that you're, you're training your relevant your data models in such a way that you try to avoid that is, is easier said than done, right? Because it just takes time to build up that, that muscle uh, effectively. I also think that, um, um, yeah, maybe slightly controversial, but I think buy no pay later as a standalone product is now obviously being copied by a variety of other players. You've had large incumbent banks, you're launching their own versions of BinoPayLater. You've had the card schemes coming out to you with different types of solutions. You've had, you know, the apples of the world, of course, coming up with you know, their own solutions as well. And therefore, I think what you'll see is on one hand, margin compression. I think, you know, the margin that they're able to, you know, to, to charge to merchants who are obviously funding the model in the end, uh, or largely funding it, uh, I think that you will come down also because of regulatory pressures. And therefore, it poses an interesting question to, you know, if you are a BinoPayLater player, again, you know, what's your plan around further product diversification, which will then lead to revenue diversification, which will allow you to work towards sustainable profitability. Uh, and of course, we, we have seen a variety of different players you know, do that, you know, whether that's the diversification from B2C to B2B, whether that's the launch of your know, loyalty solutions and you know, other types of, uh, of solutions to really you know, diversify their product offering and then you know, therefore open up a range of new revenue streams. I think profitability often becomes the key word when we are going through a bad market or a recession, uh, moving on from growth. Um, I think that's a, that's a standard. That's probably standard business cycle for uh, venture funded firms, which is 
which is not surprising at all. Just a little bit of uh, background there as well. When I was writing my second book, it's uh, it was restart. Of, I was interviewing a fintech. He he was one of the top fintech VCs in um, in Asia. He is still one of the top uh, fintech VCs there. And he mentioned in, he mentioned a particular uh, incident where a, a firm that's raising Series B in 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 a bull market, he's had commitments for his portfolio firm that's raising a Series B over the phone. Just just a pitch and commitments, and that's probably two digit in the millions. Um, and that happens often in the bull market. I, I have I have seen that happen uh, for for much earlier rounds, seed rounds. But that was a shocker for me when when these things happen for Series B rounds. And all you need to show is uh, customer acquisition. And if you can buy customers in in, in those markets, uh, you've got the funding. Anyway, so moving on from the topic of this, that particular topic of discussion, I just wanted to get your thoughts on some um, some amazing technology paradigms that we we we've been living through and seeing them evolve. Um, we see different ways AI is being used uh, today. The USB was talking about responsible AI on LinkedIn, um, and we see generative AI. We have blockchain and so many different um, technology paradigms that's that I think could potentially transform banking and other areas of financial services. We spoke to Ashok Swani on this podcast not long ago, who is now part of Pagaya, which uh, who deploy um, AI for lending. Um, so what are your thoughts on that space? Can you share a little bit about how institutions are tapping into AI and blockchain? Yeah, and no, very, very happy to. And I think that this comes back to you know, the point I was making earlier around the, the pace of change that we're seeing in the industry more broadly, which you know, that I think is unlike you know, anything that at least I've ever seen before. And I've you know, been spending a decent chunk of time in financial services. Um, I think that, that to me, and you know, obviously we do so much work in this space with you know, many of the world's leading financial institutions, and clearly, I mean, there are so many inefficiencies in you know the system more broadly, and you know, ultimately, it really comes down to you know, finding a balance between getting excited about you know, a particular piece of technology and how that's going to completely transform the industry. But yeah, let, let, let's focus on working backwards from what are the use cases that you know, we want to prioritize, and ultimately, how does this benefit us? You know, and the end consumer or or, or the end business in in, in the case of of B two B. I think what's great to see, I mean, compared to, let's say, 10 years ago, you know, the, the willingness and the ability for large financial institutions to start to play around you know, with new types of technology. But, yeah, I think the harsh reality, and you know, we all know this, is that you know, there's also a fair amount of innovation theater right, where you know, a lot of this stuff you know, never sees the light of day. And yeah, I've I've witnessed that, you know, unfortunately too many times where yeah, you've got a bunch of people getting really excited about you know the 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 uh, you know, the opportunity for AI, you know, to completely transform you know the entire organization front to back. And again, yeah, it's easy to do that, you know, in um you know in a shiny innovation lab somewhere in East London, uh, you know, versus really doing that or deploying that at scale. Um, also in, 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 you know, in a, obviously an environment that is very heavily regulated, but I do think that, I mean, part of the, the, the issue there is also the, the lack of awareness and understanding at a senior level within those organizations. And of course, that's an area that a lot of banks and other large financial institutions have really looked to, to strengthen in recent years. And yeah, I've spent lots of time with 
boards and executive teams and, and quite often that that lack of deep technology modern technology expertise let's put it that way you know is 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 quite apparent and sometimes relatively shocking and i had a fascinating conversation with someone the other day about you know to what extent is there a need for a, a dual cto role right? where you have one cto that literally just focuses on let's keep the lights on and the other CTO is more focused on, listen, like how, how do we bring this organization into the future and, and how do we set ourselves up for success and how do we fundamentally change ways of working and how do we make it easier for us to respond to new exciting trends and developments in the market? Because you know, this isn't going to change anytime soon. But I think if anything, that, that, you know, that pace of change that, that will continue to accelerate in the years to come. So therefore, you know, whether it's being able to respond to new pieces of regulation like you know, open banking, PSD2, whatever it may be, um, you know, or being able to properly benefit from new exciting technologies that come to market, you know, that, that is incredibly hard for many financial institutions. But, but I, I've definitely noticed a, a significant step change in you know, the willingness, you know, the ability for organizations to, you know, to play around with this and then really think about how do we then start to deploy this you know, at, uh, at scale. The, the whole establishment of you know, new data teams and, uh, again, the, the, the ability to partner with you know, some of these exciting companies, you know, that, that's quite fundamentally different compared to a couple of years ago. I do agree with you. There's definitely more talk of, hey, what is this? We need to do something. Um, I, I noticed that more prominently. I had to laugh when you were talking about the dual role, because if you look at the tax spend for a lot of these organizations, they say, oh, this is how much we're spending mm -hmm. on tech. Well, the question is, how much of that portion are you spending just to keep the lights running? Exactly. Versus you're actually doing something new and interesting and different. Um, devil in the details in that part. So it, this is, it is an exciting time. I noticed recently there was a conversation on payments in the U.S. Several banks are saying they're going to come up with some payment strategy to compete with Apple Pay. And I had to laugh. My first reaction was, what are you going to be able to offer to consumers that you can pry my hands away from Apple Pay? The ease of use, my phone's always there, everything is there. It's not about you creating something, is you creating something that deliver extra value for me as a consumer, so I wanna use it, right? It's not like build it and they'll come. It doesn't work that way. We still have ways to go. <laughs> <laughs> No, and, and I think I think you're absolutely spot on, Theo. And of course, you know, we have seen so many examples of not not just I mean not just banks. Uh, this applies to other industries as well. Uh, organizations trying to get together to you know go and do something and build something. I think the reality is that you're getting a a, a, a number of banks, whether that's you know, two or whether that's ten to you know, agree on something, a common set of standards, you know, how do you go about building this? You know, how do you then scale this and 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 is, is incredibly, it's hard for one organization to do, let alone you know, if you bring you know, five, six, eight different banks together, right? Yes, it is indeed. Um, so let's look forward uh, to the next couple of years. We all know that funding market is not great, although I always argue go back 
further from just a year ago. Go back, look at 2020, 2019. We're actually much higher than how we were two years ago. So it's not great, but I, I think it's not bad either. Company is still getting funded. Um, how do you think fintechs in general will be able to navigate through this phase that they have to prove out profitability, um, like both you and Arun say, um, that there's uncertainty. What are they going to be focusing on, you think? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And you know, as, as you also pointed out, you know, we're, we're still, it's not as if things have completely dried up. Well, uh, of course, we have seen you know, a, a bit of a slowdown, uh, especially at you know, Series CD, you know, EF levels. Um, obviously not you know, necessarily as much you know, IPO activity, but then again, you know, it also offers you know, some pretty exciting M&A opportunities, you know, for example, where suddenly you know, some of these assets have become 50, 60, 70% cheaper. And we've seen this you know, with some of our incumbent clients and some of our private equity clients who you know, have asked us to help them assess the market looking for interesting investment and, and acquisition opportunities. Um, now, you know, back to your question around you know, what, what do I think needs to happen? I think part of the issue is that a, a lot of, especially first-time you know, entrepreneurs who've built their fintech business in recent years, again, they've had you know, the benefit of relentless growth and you know, plenty of, of funding that was available. Now, the reality is, and again, considering the fact that we work with you know, many of the world's leading investors, there's still plenty of dry powder available. The question is, how do you go about deploying that? And yeah, as I highlighted earlier, I think if you're if you're a management team you know, in one of those fintech businesses, going back to the drawing boards and really figuring, I mean, again, it sounds so bloody obvious, but going back to the drawing boards and really thinking carefully around, listen, yeah, uh, how do we find more sustainable ways to attract new customers without spending a fortune on customer acquisition? Again, you know, just because historically, you know, we, we, we were in a position to go and do that. Really thinking about to what extent, yeah, looking at the strength of your existing management team, uh, to what extent yeah, do I have the team? I mean, it's great that we managed to get to or wherever we managed to go to, but to what extent is my existing management team fit for purpose and best placed to take this organization to the next level in the next yeah, five plus years? And I think the harsh reality is that, and obviously we've seen this with a variety of neobanks, we've seen this with a variety of other players where in areas such as AML compliance, you know, they really had to you know, bolster uh, and strengthen you know, their, their capabilities in, in those domains. Um, so really going back to the drawing board and thinking about you know, what, what is our, I mean, uh, as we often call it, what, what is our full potential strategy? And yeah, I've, uh, last year I did a bunch of work uh, with some of the you know, the big well-known neobanks. And the, the challenge, if we take neobanks as an example, the challenge that the majority of neobanks around the world have is, of course, because only a small number of them are profitable as of today. But um, you know, the, the challenge that many of them have is, again, it's you know, pretty impressive. You managed to get to, I don't know, making this up, but 1.2 million customers. But how do you better monetize that existing customer base? Well, how do you grow average revenue per user? Again, what's your plan around product and revenue diversification? How do you work towards sustainable profitability? How do you make sure you're actually going after the, the right set of customers, given how expensive customer acquisition tends to be, given how your competition continues to increase? What is that, that North Star customer? What are the characteristics of that particular customer that yeah, out of, if you, you know, start to analyze your entire customer base, 
you know, probably maybe 10 to 20% of that customer base generates the bulk of your revenues. So how do you really double down on, you know, on that segment versus trying to just acquire any customer again, to be able to demonstrate you know, to your investor clients that, Hey, we've, you know, we've witnessed fantastic user growth, but when it comes to you really changing the needle on, you know, on, on, on the line for more fundamental metrics, you know, you, you're kind of missing the point. Well, and I think that you know, to me is, is going to be incredibly important. So I think another thing that we've witnessed quite a bit um, and a fair few fintech players who've, who've come to us you know, to, to support them uh, with these topics is um, from an organizational perspective, because you've been growing so quickly in recent years, you've actually built a fair amount of organizational complexity in your organization. How do you sort of undo that? And again, you know, thinking about the next couple of years, to what extent is you know, the, the, the you know, organizational design operating model, to what extent you know, is that fit for purpose to support the ambitions that we have in the next couple of years? And I think quite often, you know, you'll likely come to the conclusion that that may not necessarily be the case. So many insightful points that Jeff, thanks, because I, I, I did get quite, and, and I have thought through a lot of the bits that you mentioned at the start, which is the narrative moving away from DAUs and MAUs, I mean, daily active users and monthly active users into the CACs, uh, cost of acquisition, the lifetime values, the RPUs. I think that has to happen, but more importantly, how can you achieve organizational efficiencies? Um, I mean, just just imagine yourself as, as as a board that's that's sailing at this point, how do you make sure you achieve efficiency without any external um, help? And and that that's a such a great point, often which is not often spoken about um, uh, in in definitely not in the venture capital circle at least. So thanks for the great uh, input there. No, no, I think the um, another thing worth highlighting is talent more broadly. I think you know, in in recent years, fintech businesses were able to attract you know, the best talent out there, and you know, give them shares and stock options, and, and you name it. But we've also seen even some of the biggest fintech players out there have significant issues around retention. So, to what extent? Again, I think this is something as a management team you need to pay you know, an awful lot of attention to. Right? So, especially when the organization starts to starts to mature, starts to grow. What what is your retention strategy? Right? To what extent are you, you do you have a clear plan around you know, not just being able to attract you know, the best talent out there, um, you know, but also being able to actually retain them and make sure that you know, these guys stay with you? And I think you always see this natural you know progression right, where um, you know, again the the you know, the guys who manage to get the organization to wherever you manage to get it to today may not necessarily be best placed. You know, to then you know, take the organization to the next level, as we were discussing earlier. And again, we've seen this with you know, some well-known neobanks, uh, for example. But I think that's a really, really important topic you know, to pay close attention to if you're uh, you know, in charge of, uh, of that business. Uh, final question, and before the final question, I'll just um, throw in a little story. So this time when I was back in India uh, in December, I, I got my mom a, a new iPhone and uh, we, we did all the transfer. It was quite seamless from her old phone to the new one. And unfortunately, I, we couldn't get the payment wallet set up in the new phone due to some incom incompatibility. It was phone pay. And we tried to get it fixed and couldn't get fixed. And she said, I don't need this iPhone because she practically relies on phone pay 
to pay every single bill and she doesn't want to use another app she doesn't want to go to the old ways of going into a government office and paying these things it's it makes her life so simple and she said no i don't want a new phone i'm happy with my old phone take it back so i'm saying this because i think that's the kind of reliance um uh, a 70 75 year old can actually have on fintech solutions and i'm seeing that in emerging markets it gives me goosebumps when i just say that because that's that's great to see now what are you excited about for the future um what are what what I mean you can you can talk about anything that you're excited about but please <laughs> share the share some insights there yeah and i think uh yeah you make an excellent point and and i mean my uh, my mom is turning 80 this year so you know, sh- shout out to my mom uh but yeah it's i've i i gave up relatively quickly when it comes to you know, trying to get her to use i mean yeah i i did get her a mobile phone similar to you but basically the only app that she's using is WhatsApp. So she can see your know, pictures of her granddaughter on a daily basis, uh, as opposed to you know, get, getting her to, to use a, a range of different apps, let, let alone banking apps, right? Now, I think that there is so much you know, to be excited about. And yeah, I said this to someone the other day, um, to me, the, the yeah, despite everything that we've experienced in, you know, in FinTech in the past you know, 12 plus months, um, there is so much phenomenal talent in this space, and I get incredibly you know, inspired every single time I speak to fintech founders and, and entrepreneurs, really trying to, to challenge that that status quo that we talked about earlier, but really focusing on you know, ultimately building a much better experience for consumers. And you know, the fact that uh, across the globe, um, you know, there are still millions and millions of customers who are unbanked and underbanked. And yeah, I sincerely doubt that you know, the big financial institutions will make that a priority for them. So we we have to rely on fintech players to sort of come in and and ultimately bring these people into the financial system, which yeah, in turn will have so many significant benefits. Um, you know, for for the economy more broadly, right? not just from a personal uh, perspective. So you know, that that is something that I continue to be very very excited about. I do think that. The financial services landscape more broadly will look very, very different in 10 years from now. It'll, it'll take time. I don't necessarily think it'll be yeah, three, four, five years from now. I think we need a little bit more time to, to really challenge that dominant you know, position uh, in, in various parts of the world. But then you know, if you look at places like Africa right, and, and you know, the, fun, you know, the fintech funding you know, flowing into, uh, into those regions and you know, some of the incredibly exciting businesses that you know, we have seen emerge, yeah, in in various parts of uh, of Africa, that is so exciting to see, and of course that leads to your know, job creation. It leads to a whole range of you know, of other uh, of other benefits, and I think you're know, more broadly that there um, there are still so many inefficiencies in the wonderful world of financial services, right? And you know the fact that I mean, just simple example, right? It's been used thousands of times, but you know the fact that if I you know, want to send money to, you know, Theo now, uh, you know, it, it's still a relatively inefficient process, right? And, you know, that still, you know, cost me a decent chunk of, of money. And obviously for many people that, um, you know, are sending money from one part of the world to the other part of the world, the fact that they lose a significant chunk of that, right, to then be able to feed your family back home is, is nonsense, right? And I think that that really shouldn't have to be the case. So really, really focusing on, but what are you know those those inefficiencies and and ultimately, 
yeah, what are those core customer jobs to be done, whether they're unmet, underneath, and overserved uh, and underserved? Um, and how do you build a, a, a better proposition around it? And back to the point you raised earlier, Aaron, I think you are absolutely right to say to what extent have you know, the current generation of neobanks uh, fundamentally changed the landscape? I don't think they have. I think they're, they're really onto something, but it's it's a it's a journey, right? And um, yeah, but but I am hundred percent. I am very very bullish. I am hundred percent convinced that you know in the next you know decade or so, uh, hopefully sooner than that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think the financial services landscape, both in terms of the, the makeup, um, you know, as well as you know the ability to provide a significantly better, more personalized service, you know, to consumers, businesses, um, I think will will you know will will change an awful lot. Um, so let's uh, let's hope that's going to be the case. I think that perfectly sums up the conversation. It is a journey, it's not a destiny. It is a never ending journey, it feels like, but cause for hope. So let's end the conversation in a positive note. And thank you so much for joining us and spending time with us today, Jeff. It's, we love the insights and I hope those who are listening can definitely benefit from what you just talked about. If they do want to reach out to you, what's the best way for our audience to find you? Um, so either you can find me on uh, on LinkedIn, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Tyson. Uh, so feel free to uh, to reach out to me uh, to be there. And again, thank you so much for uh, for having me, guys. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week. <music>